Well, at Redemption Church, which is um, one church but six congregations, and you're at the Arcadia Congregation, uh, we believe that preaching through books, verse by verse, is really the best way to proclaim the gospel and to understand uh, the Word of God. And so we do that a lot around here. Probably 90% of our preaching is just verse by verse from the beginning to the end of a book. Uh, That allows us to understand context better, we believe. It also uh, keeps us from avoiding difficult issues that might be uncomfortable to talk about. So we talk about uh, everything here. And, And we've been going through the book of Romans since Easter, which was at the end of March. We've been going through Romans, verse by verse. And and we've been slugging along, but it's been really good because we're really getting deep into what Paul had to say to that church in Rome that had both Gentile and Jewish believers, and he was trying to help them work through some issues. But ultimately, as many scholars say, his aim was to proclaim the gospel. Many scholars call the, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome the fifth gospel. And today, we finish chapter 4, which means we're 25% of the way through. We are a quarter of the way through the book of Romans. Yes, that means we've got three quarters to go. It's going to be a, a little while, but it's, it's been a great study. But I will tell you, probably the most significant chunk that we will tackle in this entire series on Romans is today. 13 verses. We took three weeks to go through the first 12 verses of Romans chapter 4, and today we're going to blow through 13 verses. And the reason is because it it all wraps together. Uh, Really, Paul just comes back and again proclaims faith, faith, faith. And so it's, it's all connected. And so that's why we chose to do these 13 uh, verses together. Uh, in, verse, in chapter 4, Romans, Paul continues to explain that righteousness or salvation or redemption or justification cannot come from anything other than through Jesus Christ. Our works, our morality, whatever we think it is that we bring to the table, that does not justify us. Only Christ does. And, and I love verse 5. I didn't get to preach on verse 5. That was Tyler's job, but I love verse 5 in chapter 4. It's an amazing verse. Paul writes, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Through the one who does not work but believes in him, has faith in him, trusts in him who justifies the ungodly. The ungodly are justified by Jesus Christ through faith in him. His or her faith is counted as righteousness. And so Paul, in chapter 4, uses uh, Old Testament figures that are very famous, Abraham and David, as his bona fides, as his proof texts, that what he is saying about faith is true, that that faith is what justifies us. And last week, in verses 9 through 12, those four verses, we again came back to circumcision, and Paul again argues That circumcision is not what justifies us. Yes, he's already talked about that in Romans, but he goes at it again because he knows how difficult it's going to be for the Jews in the church at Rome to let this go. Not that the Jews in the church at Rome are bad people, but they have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of their identity identity being centered in circumcision and the law. So Paul knows that he has to just keep coming back to this, keep coming back to this and making his case. And now in verses 13 through 15, the first three verses we look at today, he does it again, only this time he's going to go after the law again. He knows he has to keep going after this stuff to help the Jews along, to help them to let go of their false identity and get into their true identity, which is faith. 
And, and really, that's the broader message of these 13 verses and why we're doing them all together. It's faith. Paul just continues to pound the gospel. Grace, faith, trust, belief. He is relentless in this. And the reason he's relentless is because he knows the forces of the world and the forces of religion and the forces of worldview philosophies are also relentless. And so he just relentlessly goes at it. Only his relentlessness comes from the most relentless being that's ever been, and that is God. God is more relentless than we will ever know. He is the hound of heaven, and He is just chasing us down by love. And so that's what we're going to proclaim today. We're going to proclaim and pound on this drum of faith. And, and, And for those of you who are thinking, My job is to try to please God. Let me just make this point. That's a good thing to want to please God. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So the reality is that that trusting God actually is more important for us than pleasing God. If you trust God, if you have faith in Him, if you believe in Him, He's already pleased with you. The idea is then to just live in that faith. Live in that trust. Trust Him and give Him your life. And He is pleased with that. So we'll start by taking a closer look at that first little paragraph, 13 through 15, and then we'll finish with 16 uh, through 25. Let me reread 13 through 15. Paul writes, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring is that he would be heir of the world, that promise did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the ones who adhere to the law who are to be the heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So what's this promise that Paul talks about? It's really twofold, and we've been, we've been unpacking this and discussing this. It's the fact that uh, God is going to make Abraham a great nation. He's going to have many descendants, but also that the Messiah, the one, would be progeny of Abraham and, and Sarah's as well, that the Messiah would come through their line. But Paul makes sure, once again, that he says this promise has nothing to do with the law, and it has everything to do with the fact that Abraham had faith in God. It's not the result of the law, but it's because of, it's a part of what's happening with his faith. So Paul says, listen, and Paul's not, Paul's not saying the law isn't important. He's just saying that, that in spite of the importance of the law, that's not what brings us righteousness or brings anybody righteousness. Now, when he wrote the letter of Galatians a number of years earlier than than the book of Romans, he makes the same point about the law, but he uses a different argument. He uses an argument that was similar to the one he used last week about circumcision. If you remember, he, he mentioned that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness 15 years before he was circumcised. So circumcision isn't what gave him his righteousness, it was his faith. In Galatians, he says the same thing about the law. He says, look, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, that's Genesis 15, 6, 430 years before the law ever came. But that's not the argument that he's making here about the law. It's a good argument, but his argument here is a little bit different. In Romans, he actually asserts that it is the principle of law, any law, any standard, any decree, any regulation, it's the principle of any law that doesn't measure up to faith in God. 
And he makes that argument by giving us three reasons why righteousness cannot come through the principle of law. Here's the first one. If righteousness can be accomplished by the law, then faith has no value, and therefore the story of Abraham would be invalidated. Not that it didn't historically take place, but the idea that that faith was what credited him with righteousness would be invalidated. He says that doesn't mean anything anymore if in fact you can become righteous through the law. Faith has no value if a law observer is able to to do this. This verse would be nullified. He says, and that word nullified literally means that it would be void, empty, and worthless. And that leads to Paul's second point. If God's promise is dependent upon keeping the law, the promise is worthless because no one can ever keep the law. Now, for weeks we've just been pounding away on that, that no one can keep the law. We might occasionally be able to measure up to one or two parts of it, but no one can keep the entire law. And because of that, that means the promise would be void because the law wouldn't help us to justification because nobody can measure up. Someone once said, it's not your sin that keeps you from God, but your damnable good works. And the reason is because we, we run around working so hard to make ourselves just in God's eyes through works and morality and religion and philosophy and, and whatever it is that we think th- that'll do it. And that is actually what is keeping us from God. Because what actually unites us with God is faith. Just trusting Him, believing in Him. Works actually separates us because the minute we think that we've worked enough to secure God's righteousness... We begin to believe in ourselves. We begin to think it's us. We begin to think it's about us. And we tend to forget God. And then finally, number three, what actually does come through the law is wrath. It doesn't bring righteousness, but rather it brings the reason we need righteousness. The law's purpose was not for us to keep us, but to demonstrate to us how far short we fall of the glory of God. And therefore, it shows us our need for God. That's the point. No one is able to keep the law. And so, without God's justifying intervention in our lives, you and I will suffer curse. We will be subject to wrath. So understand, if there's just the law and there's no Messiah, we have no hope. There's really nothing to believe in at that point. And that really is a demonstration of how magnificent God's love is for us. In another letter, Paul says the love of God is so magnificent that it surpasses our understanding. And even though we may not be able to understand God's magnificent love this side of heaven, it doesn't mean that we can't embrace it, that we can't enjoy it, that we can't receive it, and that we cannot live in it. And Paul wants us to live in God's love. And then Paul ends this paragraph with this statement that gets a lot of press. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that you can do whatever you want as long as you don't realize it's wrong? Is that what Paul is saying? That is not what Paul is saying. I know that's one of the popular interpretations of this. But he's not saying that if, if, if somebody doesn't know that something is wrong, that it's not sin and that there are no consequences for it. By the way, if you've ever, this has been my experience anyway, and I'm assuming that some of you have had this experience. If you've ever been pulled over by a police officer 
and you try to tell them that you didn't know that what you were doing was wrong as your excuse, how often has that worked? I know a number of police officers, and by the way, they will tell you that is the last thing that they want to hear. The plead for ignorance, therefore I'm not guilty, okay? Do you know how fast you're going, Frank? Well, yeah, 85. Do you know what the speed limit was? Well, no, I don't, and that's why you should let me go. You know, you're right, I'm done, bye. That has never happened to me. That has never happened to me. It's the last thing that he's going to do. Here's what Paul is saying. Sin still exists, even though a person may not be aware of the law, but without the law, it's difficult to designate sin as sin for the person who is sinning, and therefore, it is very difficult to make it clear to that person their need for a Savior. So what Paul is saying is that if you don't have a standard of understanding how it is that we fall short of the glory of God, then there's no way that we can understand our need for Jesus Christ as our Savior, as the only one who can bridge that gap between us and God. So where there is no law, there's no transgression, what he's saying is in our mind, the sinner's mind, we haven't sinned, so why would we need a Savior? That's what he's saying. He's merely re-emphasizing the point that the law's purpose is to point out how much we need Jesus Christ. And then he writes in verse 16 the better consequences of faith. And he says in verse 16, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the one who adheres to the law, but also to the one who shares in the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So there are three benefits that Paul mentions here about faith. Number one, faith engages grace. Uh, Tyler talked about this a couple of weeks ago. If you work for your salvation, then salvation is something that is owed to you. The problem with that, of course, is that we can never work enough to have the righteousness of God owed to us. We never have enough of that. And so the only way we can have the correct amount of righteousness is by and through the grace of God which comes through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's, it's grace. It's, we need grace. We need unmerited favor. And the channel to get that grace to us is in fact faith. That's the channel by which grace is appropriated to us. So if you think of it this way, uh, grace is the engine in a car. And if you have a manual transition, faith is going to be the clutch because the clutch is what engages the power of the engine. It's the channel that gets that grace to us. So the first thing he says is that, is that faith engages grace. Second of all, he says faith makes salvation certain absolutely guaranteed. He uses the word guaranteed and the root of that Greek word that we translate as guaranteed is rock. So what he's saying is faith in Jesus Christ is rock solid. Not because your faith is so wonderful, but because Jesus is the solid rock. And then third, he says, faith opens the door for salvation to everyone. Not just to the Jew, but to everyone. And Paul, again, reminds the Jews that Abraham is the father of many great nations, not just of the Jews. And it is by faith, not the law, that Abraham became the father of all who believe. And so it's really important for us to understand, Paul doesn't just, just pound on the law and say that, 
he's not even saying the law is bad. He's just saying it's, it's misused or misappropriated if we think that's where we get our righteousness from. But rather, he doesn't, he doesn't just do that, but rather he also exalts faith. He argues for faith. And he argues for faith because God is not a taskmaster, as many of us believe, but he's rather a loving father who desires to be in relationship with us because that's ultimately what is best for us. And that's done by grace through faith. So verse 16 is a big deal. It is the faith alone declaration. Nothing else. Faith. You know, every one of us come, comes into this room here this morning knowing that we need something. We're here because we need something. We need encouragement. We need uh, the life of the community. We need to hear the gospel. We need to hear the, the word of God. We don't know God and, and we don't know what's wrong with the world. We don't know if there's anything wrong with us. And so we come in here looking for answers. We come in here because we have a need. The problem is, is that very often the needs list that we prepare is, is incorrect. And God says, listen, here's your needs list. Faith in Jesus Christ. That's what you need. That's what the believer needs. That's what not, the non-believer, everybody, that's what we need. He has a short list, and that's what it is. We need faith. We need to be able to trust him. Uh, Kent Hughes, who's a pastor and an author and a commentary, has a commentary on Romans. He writes it this way. Today, it is fashionable to derive our preaching agendas from the felt needs of men and women in our congregations and on the streets of where we live. It's known as the homiletics of consensus, which is actually a form of false teaching and consumerism. The problem is that the average person in our churches or on the street has no idea what he or she really needs, which is the truth of faith found in the letter to the Romans. So now, hang with me. This is really important. The rest of this, par- this, this passage, this one last big paragraph, verses 17 through 25, while Abraham continues as Paul's example, what Paul is really getting at is, is the power and the glory and the majesty and the sovereignty of God. These, these last eight or nine verses really about God. So we're going to lean into that. And his thesis is in verse 17 where he says that Abraham believed in God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That is a very impressive resume line. What can you do? Well, I can give life to the dead and I can call into existence the things that do not exist. Not many of us have that on our resume. God does. He's the only one. And so he gives life to the dead. Now, Abraham has no reference really of resurrection yet, but According to the author of Hebrews, he believed in it. That's what he thought would, would happen when in, in Genesis 22, he was told to take Isaac up and sacrifice him. The author of Hebrews tells us that uh, Abraham thought that he would have to actually sacrifice uh, Isaac and, and then he would be raised to life, a new life. Now, that's not exactly how it happened. He got up there and he was about to sacrifice his son, the son of the promise. And at the last second, God provided him an alternate sacrifice, the ram. Nevertheless, apparently Abraham believed in resurrection. Believed in being raised. That God could give life to to the dead. And through Christ, God raises us too. 
But there's another meaning to this. This is also about Sarah's womb. She's 90. Her womb was dead. So it's about that as well. And then the second part of this statement is that he, God calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's certainly a reference to Genesis 1 where God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates the universe. And, and here's the thing. He created it out of nothing. Ex nihilo. When, when you and I create stuff, we already have stuff to create with. We already have material. We have resources which God has provided for us. God did it out of nothing. There was nothing and then suddenly there was something. That's fairly impressive as well. And, and, and Paul is referencing that. But also, again, there's a second meaning. This is also a reference to the fact that Abraham had faith in God that he would create Isaac out of nothing, which was Sarah's womb because her womb was void. And this would take a miracle of God and it happened. And, and I just, this really isn't that complicated. So let me just simply make this statement. The God who is powerful enough to create from nothing is also powerful enough to recreate Sarah's ability to have children even at her advanced age and that means that he is powerful enough and he is able to save you and I through his son Jesus Christ and that's what it takes, faith in him. And that's what Paul is just grinding away at and driving at. And so now with that as our thesis, we can now look at some of the reasons why Abraham was able to have faith and we can translate to those, those reasons to us as well. And we'll close with these four things. First of all, there, are, there is the faith in the promise of God. When God makes a promise, we, we, we can have faith. We can trust that that promise is going to come true. It may not always be on our timing and the way we want it, but we know that it's real. Paul says that Abraham believed God's promise, the promise of the offspring. And that word that we see uh, for offspring, it's in verse 18. It was also in verse 16. Uh, it can be translated a couple of ways, and it is. It's, it's translated as descendants, which means he's going to be the father of many, of many great nations. But it also can be translated as the word seed, singularly. So God promised Abraham lots of children, but he also promised him the child. Capital T, capital C. God's promises can believe. And Paul shows that by using Abraham as his example. And so we think about God's promises to us. Well, that would be life. That would be victory over death, victory over Satan, victory over sin. And Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John that that we also have life, but, but life abundantly. That we have a life of peace and a life of joy. We have a purposeful life and a consecrated life all because of Jesus. And the second reason we see is that Abe had faith despite clear obstacles. I'm going to spend some time here. As Abraham looked around his life situation, Rather than seeing a lot of hope in his situation absent of God, all he could really see were obstacles. It's not as though God uh, or anybody else was using a lot of people their age to do God's purposes. So he didn't have that as, as a source of encouragement to draw on. And so Paul says he had hope against hope. He had hope against the hope of his circumstances but he believed because it was God 
So you think about what did God have to work with in this situation? Well, he had a dead body and a barren womb. In other words, he had bad biology. The biology did not work here. Our oldest daughter, Shelby, is a senior now at, in college, and she's majoring in biology, and she's doing really, really well academically. Jackie and I were never very good academically in the physical sciences the way Shelby has been. We're not sure where she gets that. We're glad she has it, though. But talking to her about biology, it's amazing the things that she can tell us about life and death. It's wonderful to have a, a physical science major around our house. It's really interesting. But while science is terrific, we need to understand that God trumps science. God created science, and therefore He can intervene in science. He can trump science. Here you go. I, in the 90s and early 2000s, I haven't seen this much, as much recently, although I still hear about it, but in the 90s and early 2000s, there was a big movement by a lot of scholars, and therefore it got into the pedestrian life of the church as well, to try to explain away the miracles of Jesus. That if we could rationally explain the miracles of Jesus, then maybe people who don't believe in Jesus would believe in him. Well, at that point, I'm saying, well, what's the point? If he's just another guy who can't intervene supernaturally, who can't trump science, what's the point then? He's just another guy. Talk to Oprah. What's the difference, okay? But, but they had this desire. They thought, well, if we could just be rational about it rather than saying, well, he, he did a supernatural thing. He broke down. So here are, some of the, here are some of the explanations. And these were popular explanations that a lot of people embraced. So the feeding of the 5,000. You know, there's 5,000 people there. They're going, we don't have any food. What are we going to do? Send them away, Jesus. No, no, no. Here comes a little boy, right? Remember, a little boy. Here you go. I got some fish and I got some, some, some loaves of bread. It's enough for me, but not enough for 5,000. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to contribute it here. Okay. Here's the, and then Jesus prayed, blessed it, and he just starts passing out all this food. He feeds everybody, and then he's got stuff left over as well. Okay, miracle, right? No, here's the explanation. In fact, everybody who was gathered there, all 5,000 of those men, women, and children, there's also, it's more than 5,000, but all 5,000 of them, they all actually had food with them hidden in their tunics, hidden underneath, okay? But they were assuming that nobody else had food, and so they were worried to bring the food out because then they would be made to share it with everybody else. But then this little boy goes up and selflessly lays the food at Jesus' feet, demonstrating that we should all be selfless, not selfish, and it melted the hearts of the 5,000 people and soon they were all opening their tunics and going, I got bread here, I got fish here. Got some mustard here even, you know? The mustard part I made up. But the rest of it, this is what they're saying, okay? And so there wasn't a miracle. Everybody had their food there. They just didn't want to bring it out. They were scared to bring it out. But their hearts were melted by the little boy. It's interesting that the gospel writers chose not to, you know, describe it that way. How about the walking on water thing? Okay, well, as I understand it, there's, a, there's actually a latent shelf about a foot beneath the water line in the Sea of Galilee in a certain area of the sea where Jesus is actually, he was actually walking on that shelf, which was about a foot below the water, and it looked like he was walking on the water, but he was really just walking on this sandbar. Okay, that's, that's the explanation there. Okay, how about the resurrection? Okay, well, Jesus really didn't die. He, many of you have heard this word. He what? Swooned. 
He swooned. Uh, he was able to, to, to go in, make his body go into this state that looked like he was dead, where his, re- uh, um, his respiration was brought down really low, and he fooled everybody, and they wrapped him up and put him in the tomb. And then three days later, after being beaten and put on the cross and, and having uh, just vinegar wine and, and nothing to eat and nothing to drink, he comes busting out of that tomb just fine. Okay? Same thing with Lazarus. He didn't raise Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus also swooned. Okay? Uh, the U.S. hockey team in, in the 1980 Olympics, they didn't really play the Russians. They just played a high school team that had on Russian uniforms. That's how that miracle happened. <laughs> All the miracles of Jesus can be explained away, okay? Well, if God can't do that, then he's not God. We, we really need to understand that. Abraham was 100. Sarah was 90 when they had Isaac. It was a miracle. It was a miracle of God. How many octogenarians, nonagenarians, and centenarians do you see today having babies? My mom and dad were in the first service, so I got to embarrass them a little bit. My mom turned 89 on Wednesday. My dad is 92. Do you think they're going to have a child anytime soon? Thank you. (laughs) We have one believer in here, I'm telling you. That is awesome. No, they're not. And none of their kids are hoping that they start having kids again. I can tell you that for sure. Okay? And by the way, some people, just, some people assume, let me just say this too, some people assume that, that when a person has faith, they must also by definition check their intellect at the door. They, they must by definition ignore facts. The only way you can have faith is if you ignore facts. Facts. That's not true. Faith does not ignore facts and it does not require you to check your intellect. Rather, it just acknowledges that God can intervene, He can overcome, He can recreate, and He can redeem. It just acknowledges the fact that God can do stuff that you and I can't do. And when Paul says that we should walk by faith and not by sight, he's not saying close your eyes and ignore everything around you. That's not it at all. It's, it, 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 that's exactly right. You will hit a wall. Thank you. He says, keep your eyes open. You see everything around you, but you also know the Word of God. You know His promises. You have faith in Jesus Christ and in His resurrected life, and the Holy Spirit lives in you, and so you lean into that knowing that God can overcome even your most difficult circumstances. And if He doesn't overcome them, He's going to give you the power to get through them. That's what it means to walk by faith, not by sight. It means not to be worried or dragged down by what you see, but rather to place your hope in Him. It's the difference between having a worry list and a hope list. One person says it this way, faith is unreasonable only within a restricted worldview that denies God the right to intervene. And so I ask you, do you have worry lists or do you have hope lists? Because God wants you to have hope lists. Number three, the power of God gives us a reason to have faith. The promises, his ability to overcome obstacles, and then his power. Abraham, verse 21 says, was fully convinced that God could do what he said he was going to do. And Abraham had already seen God work, and so he had, a, he had a point of reference for that. We have a point of reference too. Jesus was raised from the dead. That's power. We have it even better than Abraham. We should believe. 
Having taken into account all the factors, Abraham concluded that the certainty of God's power was superior to all other factors. And then finally, number four, Abraham had a faith that moved him into action. And this one is a little bit difficult, so we'll spend a little bit of time here. Paul says that Abraham's faith did not weaken and it did not waver. You and I go to Genesis and we read the story of Abraham and we say, gee whiz, it sounds like he was weak and he wavered. You read those stories, right? So the question is, did Abraham waver or didn't he? Here's the answer. Yes and no. And I know that sounds a little flip and I'm not trying to be flip about this. I'm very serious, but I want to see if we can unpack it and explain it in its proper context. We need to understand that Abraham's like you and I. He was not perfect. He had a lot of flaws. He made a lot of dumb mistakes. Did a lot of crazy things, right? You read some of that stuff and you're like, man, I wouldn't even do that. I don't know. Have you ever been in some of the circumstances that Abraham was in? Maybe you would. Nevertheless, he had his flaws. He wasn't perfect. In Genesis 17... God comes to him again and says, this is going to happen. You're going to be the father of of, of this incredible nation. And what was Abraham's response? He fell down laughing. He, He was the original rolling on floor laughing. Dot, dot, dot. He's the original guy that did that. He laughed at God. God comes to you and however he does it, he, he whispers it to you through the Holy Spirit in your heart. He, he speaks to you through your faith community. He speaks to you through his word. And he says, I want you to do something that's going to be really difficult or even crazy sounding. And what do we do when we first hear that? I'll tell you what I do. I've laughed. I've shook my head. I've said, there's no stinking way. And then we do it anyway. Why? Because He's God and He is able. And He is the one who's giving us this faith and this power in the first place and that's why we can trust in it. So, Our faith wavers too, but in the end, it doesn't because ultimately what we do is we are moved to action. We shake our head, we laugh, we resist, we come up with all the reasons why we can't do it, we yell at our family, we do whatever, we we whine to our pastor, whatever. I get to whine to my wife, whatever it is. And then we do it anyway. It's not always easy, but God is faithful, and so we can have faith. A couple things that we should remember in Genesis 17, 22 through 24. <laughs> Abraham went through with circumcision. Now understand, he was not eight days old with no choice and he never was going to remember it anyway. That's not his circumstance. He was an adult. That took faith to be able to do that. And I'm sure he went into that shaking his head, but he did it anyway. And then also in, 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 in chapter 17, we are told that Abraham accepted his name change from God. Originally, his, his name was Abram. Abram in Hebrew means father of many. Abraham in Hebrew means father of a vast, vast multitude. So God took it up a notch. And Abraham accepted that. If Abraham had looked around at his circumstances, 
Here's what Abraham would have changed his name to. He would have changed his name to Ablo, which in Hebrew means father of none. Or at best, Abchad, which is father of one. But God comes to him and says, before he's even got this baby, he says, we're going to change your name to the father of a vast, vast, vast multitude. Abraham had a persevering faith. He had a faith that, that laughed, that shook its head, that fought back, that resisted, that doubted, but ultimately he persevered. When we get into chapter 5 in the next couple of weeks in Romans, we're going to see that brought to us also by Paul, that this idea of persevering comes when we have these experiences where we're kind of just fits and starts and running into trouble and having tribulation and trials, but that develops in us a persevering faith, a faith that comes back relentlessly time and time again, even though we keep getting knocked down. And Paul says ultimately this gave glory to God. How did he give glory to God? It gave glory to God because he was obedient. And obedience requires faith. When God calls us to something, being obedient to him actually is an act of faith. Sin is an act of unbelief. Being obedient is an act of trust, of belief, of faith. Abraham doubted, he laughed, he stumbled, he sinned, but ultimately he obeyed. And that takes faith in God and that glorifies God when we obey him. So do you have a faith that moves you to action? In James, says that if your faith is without works, if your faith is something that doesn't motivate you to action, then your faith is dead. You're not saved by your works, but your works, your action, are the fruit of your justification, which comes by faith. Paul then closes with these last three verses, which is really, once again, he comes back to a proclamation of the gospel. Here's what he writes. But the words it was counted to him, Abraham, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. One scholar says this, faith pleads what the Lord has done. Faith boasts in what God has done, not in what we can do. Because we haven't done anything. Faith pleads what the Lord has done. And by the way, this takes us right back, full circle, to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for anyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And we see in verses 23 through 25, Luther points this out, we see the entire redemptive plan of God is in verses 23 through 25. Faith, believe, we must trust. There's the idea of imputed righteousness. That's when he says it was counted to us. That is, the righteousness of God is imputed to us, is given to us as a gift through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says we need to be in Christ. His righteousness gets imputed to us. Resurrection is there. Talks about 
The resurrection of Jesus, and and by the way, that's not just life after death, but it is life and victory over death now, today. Grace is extended, sin is paid for, and we lived as justified people for all who believe. And this starts with faith. James Boyce wrote this, If you are excluded from the adoption of God, the adoption of what, as one of Abraham's heirs, it is only because you refuse to walk through that open door. You cannot reject Jesus and then complain that you are not included. You excluded yourself, and it is because you prefer your own sullied morality to God's grace. How many of us prefer our own sullied morality to God's magnificent grace? This, this little paragraph that Boyce writes reminds me of when, of when C.S. Lewis writes about the majesty and the magnificence of God's love that, that we refuse so often, that we turn away from. It, it's like the child who would rather spend his time making mud pies because he can't imagine what a day at the beach might look like. If we refuse God's grace, if we refuse to believe in Jesus Christ, we're refusing the greatest thing that could ever be given to us as the greatest gift for something that we have constructed that has no chance of measuring up to God's glory. Let's pray. God, We thank you for confronting us where we are and asking us to understand that it is only through you that we can find justification, righteousness, new life, redemption, recreation. So God, I pray that we would have the courage to live in and by your faith that we would come to you through your Lord Jesus Christ and we pray it in his name. Amen.